Welcome to my channel. My name is Michael Millerman and I make videos on political philosophy. In this video, I'd like to show you how tarot cards may be useful to say something about political philosophy. Maybe a strange idea. But in my book, Beginning with Heidegger, I wrote, in our tarot deck of political philosophy, we cannot rest content with any one card, whether fool, magician, or emperor. Only the entire deck permuted will do. Hopefully this video gives you a sense of the kind of thing I had in mind, or at least it helps you to use the symbolic system of the tarot to express and to meditate on political ideas. Tarot cards are a symbolic system, a language. They can be used to describe and evoke states, situations, and experiences, hopes, longings, fears. A single card tells a story. The entire deck resembles a Torah. Turn it over and turn it over for everything is in it. When Leo Strauss examined the corpus of Platonic dialogues in his book, The City and Man, he derived the importance of the political for Plato, partly by observing that the names of several dialogues had a political character, not only when they named famous men of politics, but especially when they named great themes of political life, like the Republic and the laws, for instance. In other words, at the beginning of this book, The City and Man, Leo Strauss says, how should we begin to study Plato? What is he writing about? What's his theme? What's his topic? We don't know because he wrote dialogues. He didn't write anything in his own name. He's not one of the characters in his dialogues. So you don't exactly know what Plato thought. You only know what his characters thought. And then Strauss says, well, some people just identify Plato's opinion with Socrates' opinion. But the difficulty, as Strauss points out, is that Socrates famously spoke ironically. So even in the case of Socrates, you don't know, does he mean what he's saying or doesn't he? How do we make sense of what he's saying? So Strauss said, there's something that Plato had total control over and that he didn't mask under any other character's name, and that's the titles of his dialogues. So when Strauss examined the titles of his dialogues, as I just said, he was able to find their political character. Think about it. There's a dialogue called the Republic. There's a dialogue called the Laws. There's a dialogue called the Statesman, and so on. Turning to the major arcana, don't actually know how to pronounce that. Okay, wait, I'm going to pause it and check it. Let's go with arcana. Okay, that was the pronunciation of the first video I turned on. So turning to the major arcana of the tarot, the 22 cards at the head of the four suits. In other words, in a tarot deck, you have, well, it's a long story, okay? But the first two cards, the first 22 cards, non-suited, are called uh, these arcana. And do we find traces of the political in their names? So we're now doing with the cards what Leo Strauss did with the titles of Plato's dialogues. The cards traditionally numbered three and four are the empress and emperor. Cards eight and 11 vary by deck, but often refer to either justice or strength. Temperance, a classical virtue, is card 14. Judgment, still a political good, however much lacking at any time, is card 20. Let's say that the justice, judgment, strength, and temperance of the emperor and empress have a right to be considered matters of political concern. We're proceeding naively here. We don't yet know the meaning of the cards. We're just observing that some of them have a political character. Emperor, empress, judgment, strength, temperance. Other cards among the 22 recall the theological side of the theological political dimension, including both the gods of the city and the gods not of the city. There are those who guard the mysteries, 
and those who participate in them, the magician, the high priestess, the hierophant. Note that the first self-evidently political cards to appear, empress, emperor, are both preceded and immediately followed by the theological ones. And here I note that divine offices, Aristotle said, are sixth and first in order of importance. Okay, Aristotle in the politics, he makes this claim, which I examine in my course at the Millerman School on Aristotle's politics, that you have divine offices are sixth and first in importance. This kind of ambiguous phrase. He has a list of offices, and when he gets to the divine offices, he says they're sixth and first. So somehow they're of primary importance in that sense, they're first. But in another way, first you have to have your military and these other kinds of offices, and only later do you prioritize the divine religion, the divine cult, or whatever the case might be. So I'm drawing a parallel here to the tarot cards, where first you have the, as it were, theological or religious cards, then you have some political cards, emperor, empress, and then you have further religious or theological cards. So there's a structural similarity that you might not have expected to see between the theological political in the tarot and the theological political in Aristotle. And those are the kinds of similarities that as an experiment, I'm suggesting some of you with a symbolic bent might like to play with. Strauss, Leo Strauss that is, once wrote, the greatest literature of the past has so many interesting devils, madmen, beggars, sophists, drunkards, epicureans, and buffoons. The tarot has its version, the fool, the hermit, the hanged man, the devil. Card six is the lovers. Has there been a question fitter for political philosophy than what one loves? Wisdom, honor, pleasure, power, the good, or one's own? A problem more at the heart of political affairs than the problem of the erotic? Destruction or downfall has its depiction in the tower, growth and prosperity in the sun. Other celestial figures, the moon and the star, remind us that the world is deeper than the day. Death and the wheel of fortune round out the azure bell. Thus, at a glance, do the cards reveal a concern with the broad scope of human and political life, from death and destruction, to good rule, to the private life of the hermit or fool, to the public religion with its mysteries. I propose the task for an encompassing soul to read in the tarot a story of philosophy and law, the city and man. For those of you who don't know the names of Two books by Leo Strauss. The tarot Ouroboros links the fool, O holy fool, to the world, O holy world, only through the holy ring of the arcana. Politics, rule, virtue, will, knowledge, mystery, power. Okay, now in this little experiment, we go on to discuss a card or two. So stay with me, Michael Millerman. Dot com if you want to see my books and courses, millermanschool.com if you want to get into the details on the school. But let's go further through the cards. The Fool. The most obvious way to begin a study like this one is not the only defensible way. So 
In other words, if you're thinking, where do I start a book on tarot and political philosophy? Oh, did I say book? I thought I might work this project out into a book, and I still might. The natural place to start would be with the first card of the Arcana, the zero card, the Fool. However, as I just said, that's not the only place you could start. It's as natural to start with the first card of the major arcana, the fool, as it is to start from what is more familiarly political in the ordinary course of affairs, where we could search the deck to find a card about which we have something obviously political to say. So we could start with the emperor, we could start with the empress, we could start with the chariot or the tower. However, maybe not such a bad idea to start at the beginning. Don't think that the fool is the right starting point precisely on the basis of familiar experience simply because there are fools aplenty in political life. Okay, here's the argument, right? Some things are first for us, and some things are first in the order of existence. So what's first for us is what we're most familiar with. But sometimes, to use Alexander Dugan's beautiful image, and maybe he bored it from somewhere else, I don't know, sometimes we have to climb the waterfall. We have to go against the tendency, against where inertia and momentum are bringing us and go to the source or to the origin of things. So we don't tend to climb the waterfall. We tend to flow out into the world of affairs, the world of our concerns. That's what's familiar to us. But what is first in the order of priority of existence may be what you have to climb the waterfall to get to. So the question is, in a study like this, tarot and political philosophy, do we start at the top of the waterfall with the zero? Or do we start at the bottom of the waterfall with things that we're familiar with? Okay. And what I'm presenting now is the argument that, well, the fool, the zero card, the top of the waterfall, maybe it's not so unfamiliar to us because after all, politics is full of fools. So don't think the fool is the right starting point precisely on the basis of familiar experience, simply because there are fools aplenty in political life. The foolishness of the tarot's fool is nothing ordinary. The card is often read as signifying the carefree joy, exuberance, and excitement of new beginnings that remain blissfully unaware of or unconcerned by dangers ahead. As a Dionysian card, it is also Zarathustrian, embodying the love of eternal life and the dancing virtue. Those are figures from Nietzsche's Zarathustra. It's a card of spontaneity, but also in the thoughtful interpretation of weight, unwisdom, the zero or negative, which is presupposed by numeration. In the famous weight rider deck, the fool pauses at the brink of a precipice among the great heights of the world, where he surveys the blue distance before him, its expanse of sky rather than the prospect below. He is, White writes, the spirit in search of experience. Perhaps there's something of revolutionary significance in this card, which resets the days to zero so that the count may start again, which it does when it turns from the fool to the magician, zero to one. We could have started not with the arcana, but with the suits, the cups, wands, swords, and coins to delimit the political dimension of the tarot, or the way in which in intersecting with human life, it can't help but involve the political side of our lives. Again, here we're exploring the possibility of the political significance of the tarot, and the suits possibly hold a key. Cups, in short, are our emotions. Wands, our energy, passion, will. 
Swords can depict clarity, decisiveness, pain, danger, intellection. Coins finally are the whole familiar world of material woe and well-being. Arguably, coins and swords circumscribe the realm we traditionally consider political, economy and war, guns and money. But of course, that's only half the story of the suits, poorly told, and it remains oblivious of everything higher symbolized in the arcana, including the fool and magician. So let us permit the foolish zero to accompany us through the breaking point of political mathematization. The fool is the zero card. Okay, it's the card that, as Waite said, precedes enumeration, precedes calculation, precedes the count. And you know there's this famous book called Zero to One, and that book encapsulates a comprehensive teaching about the nature of entrepreneurship. Well, here we have a, another kind of zero to one, plus much more besides. So there are worlds contained even in the small transition from the fool to the magician. Well, momentous, but small in comparison to all of the traditions of the, excuse me, all of the transitions of the tarot taken together. So here we want to have the foolishness of the fool, the unwisdom, that which escapes calculation, that which is carefree, joyous, spontaneous, uh, that sort of holy fool, I suggest, we bring it forward in our study of the rest of the political philosophy of the tarot so that we never find ourselves at a moment where we're just stuck or trapped in a system like a cage with no possibility of escape, no possibility of transcendence, no outlet to something transpolitical, and nothing wholly remaining. So we move now from, as I said here, let, let us permit the foolish zero to accompany us through the breaking point of political mathematization, now that we start with the numbered cards proper. So we turn then to the magician. The magician means activity, self-realization, striving for power, and he shows an extraordinary vitality. It's a card of focused energy and creative will. If the fool could remind us of eternal life, eternal return, the ever-present and ongoing return to beginnings, and to the concealed precondition of manifestation, the unwisdom that lies behind wisdom, the zero that lies behind numeration, possibly we could say the concealment that lies behind bringing things to light, the magician could remind us of will to power, control, and mastery, an interpretation of oneself in the world that positions one as master of the world. Together with the last card of the major arcana, the world, you could tell a large part of the dramatic story of political philosophy and thus of human destiny using the relationship of these first two cards of the deck. So there's a lot that you could say just using the story of the fool and magician. Consider, for instance, that mode of world interpretation that culminates in a project of uninhibited technological mastery. Such an attitude is well figured by the magician, whose meaning is still not therefore bound by that reading alone. So we're going to treat the magician for a moment as the sign of technological mastery over the world, as long as we don't limit that. That's not the last word on the, on the magician, provided he sees himself and not the fool as the true origin. So here's what I'm saying. The magician card taken by itself for our purposes, independently of the fool, you know, the magician that has forgotten that it's the one that follows the zero, that sort of just ignores or forgets or tries to annihilate 
erase all traces of the zero, sees itself as the starting point, itself as the source and origin, itself as the creative master that wills control over the whole. Well, there's a problem now. It's been decoupled from its muse, so to speak. It's been decoupled from its origin and from its own transcendence. So when we take the magician like that, then we have a technological attitude that has lost, forgotten, or suppressed the fool's relationship to the world. It would be incorrect from every perspective to resolve the difficulty by negating or demeaning the assertive drive of the magician. This particular reading of the magician as the technological will to mastery over the world, which aims to show its limited nature to the extent to which it hasn't incorporated the wisdom of the fool into its own outlook, is not meant to deny the valuable contribution that technological creative mastery over the world makes to human life or to denigrate man's creative calling. That's what I say here, okay? So we don't want to demean the assertive drive of the magician. We could propose that the fool and the magician represent to an extent what Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik called the Adam A. and Adam B. of our natures. Neither one self-sufficient, both integral to the human being, though this connection is only approximate since the deeper meaning of the fool is not simply identical with redemptive man, and there's more to the magician than creative mastery of the outer world. Okay, there's this rabbi, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. He wrote a book famous in Jewish circles called The Lonely Man of Faith. I have a course on that book at Millerman School. And the basic idea of the book on the lonely man of faith is that the two creation stories in Genesis reflect man's fundamental duality. On one hand, creative mastery of the outside world, that's like conquering space or exploring, that's all of our cosmic scientific exploration, and there's something truly majestic and appropriate to man in that action. Our exploration of the world reflects part of our nature. However, only part of it. The other part of it is this receptivity to the still small voice where we hear the call of God inwardly, not mediated through the cosmos. And in responding to that call in a faithful manner, we constitute or form communities of faith that are oriented towards man's redemption. So you could say like the inward uh, religious receptive side of our existence as opposed to the outward creative technological side of our existence. And Rabbi Soloveitchik argues in that book, in short, that our culture, our civilization has put such an emphasis on the exploration, conquest, and scientific attitude of what he calls Adam A, the first part of our nature, that it has not left adequate place for Adam B, the redemptive inward side of our nature. So therefore, the book is called The Lonely Man of Faith, because among other things, the man of inward faith today finds himself alone in a world that has put the emphasis on science and its conquests, science and its abilities. So we have a nice, simple model there, Adam A, Adam B. And I suggest that in some way we can read the fool and the magician onto that. Now, it's not a perfect mapping, is what I said in my notes, but 
it gives us another parallelism between the language of the tarot and the language of thoughtful analysis of human and political life developed by people like Rabbi Soloveitchik in this case. The fool to repeat is not simply identical with redemptive man, with that inwardness of the still small voice in the community that forms around it. And there's more to the magician than creative mastery of the outer world. The magician wills, but he does not see his will as throne projection in Heidegger's words. He does not see the self behind his self-assertiveness. He cannot say, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. No one liveth in the magician who alone commands the seen and unseen forces and powers of existence, shaper of space and time. So once again here, the meditation from a political philosophy point of view on the magician card taken in isolation from the fool is that the magician sees himself as the source of power. He doesn't give credit where it's due. He has no higher authority than himself. The political magician is enthralled with what he can do and what he has done, but he's at the risk of mistaking his magical power for mystical insight into the nature of political affairs. The realm of the political appears for him as material upon which he can impress the forms of his will to power. In Crowley's deck, there's a symbolic connection between the magician and the devil, where the dark part of creative power is shown. The magician is the founder. Everything depends on how he understands the nothing in relation to which he founds something. Is his nothing the source of the gift of his creativity, which he honors, shelters, and preserves in his creations? Is it the rich, generous, no thing that is the womb of all everything? Or is it the empty, lawless abyss over which he reigns like a god? Fool and magician, zero and one, thus embody two crucial aspects of political power and creativity at its most basic root. The fool without the magician, the magician without the fool, and the fool and the magician together should signify three basic attitudes towards origin and establishment, chaos, and order. And you see, to be continued perhaps, because I think there's a lot to be gained in mapping ideas of political philosophy onto the tarot and in going in the opposite direction. There may be things that we find in a symbolic interpretation of the tarot cards missing in our current political vocabulary, missing from our current understanding of the meaning of political life in the broad perspective of human life at its fullest. So I, when teaching these authors, Leo Strauss, Martin Heidegger, Rabbi Soloveitchik and others have sometimes had quick informal recourse to the symbolism of the tarot to make a point. And so I thought it could be interesting to develop that intuition into a full fledged project, doing a commentary on each card and on the relationships among the cards with an eye to their significance for political philosophy. It's a big project. I may or may not continue it. We'll see, but hopefully you got something out of this short presentation. You can find the text that I was reading from uh, here on michaelmillerman.ca or michaelmillerman.com. They both go to the same place under the blog section. I have a document version of this somewhere with the proper footnotes. So you can see where the quotes are taken from on this new website. I don't yet have footnotes set up for the blog. I don't know. That's a separate issue. 
Well, I hope that you found this to be thought-provoking and interesting. Feel free to comment below if you have some interest in tarot or no interest or these kinds of thoughts have crossed your mind before. And I otherwise look forward to seeing you in the next video.